Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 44. After Hours with Joseph Laconte. Good morning and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where normally two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. And over the course of this season, we read Till We Have Faces, but we are currently in Tolkien month. So for the past two episodes, we've been speaking with the podcast hosts of The Prancing Pony and The Tolkien Road. And next time, we'll be talking with Caitlin from the podcast Tea with Tolkien. And then Matt is going to be wrapping things up with a mammoth two-parter interview with Dr. Diana Glyer. Sandwiched among that cornucopia of Tolkien goodness is this episode. And we have with us today the author of the New York Times bestselling book, a Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War. How J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis rediscovered faith, friendship, and heroism in the cataclysm of 1914 to 1918. And the author of that book is Joseph Leconte. Dr. Leconte is a native of Brooklyn, New York. His commentary on religion and public life appears in the nation's leading media outlets, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the National Interest, the Weekly Standard, and the National Review. He's also a regular contributor to the London-based Standpoint and the Huffington Post. And for the past 10 years, he served as a commentator on the National Public Radio's All Things Considered. And in addition to the book about Lewis and Tolkien, which we'll be discussing today, he is also the author of several other books, including God, Locke and Liberty, The Struggle for Religious Freedom in the West, The Searchers, A Quest for Faith in the Valley of Doubt, but more recently, after 10 years of teaching Western civilization at King's College in New York City, last month, Dr. Leconte joined the Heritage Foundation as the director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies. And despite being in the flux of all that change and more than a few technological issues, he has been kind enough to come on the show today. Dr. Joseph Leconte, welcome to Pints with Jack. David, thanks so much for having me. It's terrific to be with you. Well, here at Pints with Jack, we have a drink of the week, a quote of the week. We toast a patron. So uh, let's crack on with the drink of the week. Now, listeners, actually, yesterday I received a bottle of Eagle Rare Bourbon, which was very generously donated by one of our listeners. But I'm going to be saving that for when Matt and I record our season finale. So instead of Eagle Rare, today I am enjoying a glass of Ashentoshin, uh, a lowland single malt in one of our Pints with Jack Glencairn glasses. Uh, Dr. Leconte, are you enjoying anything at the moment, either non-alcoholic or otherwise? Well, nothing as, as sophisticated as your drink. I just have a little afternoon Cabernet over here, so I'll, uh, I'll be sipping that as we work through our time together. Very nice. So that was the drink of the week, the quote of the week. Given that today we're going to be talking about warfare and the effects of war on the human heart and mind, I thought this passage from The Return of the King was appropriate. It's where Aragorn is speaking to Pippin about his friend Merry. He is weary now and grieved. But these evils can be amended. So strong and gay a spirit is in him. His grief he will not forget. But it will not darken his heart. It will teach him wisdom. And uh, let's toast our Patreon supporter, which today is Molly Hugo. And I'm just going to steal a toast which Tolkien himself gave at the Hobbit dinner in Rotterdam in 1958. So if you'll please raise your glasses. I look east, west, north and south, and I do not see Sauron. But I see that Sauron has many descendants. We hobbits have against them no magic weapons. Yet, my gentle hobbits, I give you this toast. To the hobbits, 
May they outlast the Saramans and see spring again in the trees. Cheers. <sighs> Delicious. So, a little earlier, I gave a very brief overview of your life, uh, but could you please fill in a few more details about yourself and your career? Well, thank you for asking, David. Um, I've worked as a political journalist. I've worked uh, as an educator at the King's College, as I say. So I think broadly speaking, I, I ever since my real uh, conversion to Christianity uh, in my college days, I really had this sense that I wanted to be able to write, to communicate uh, the deep truths of the faith for a broad audience, not only for a conservative or Christian audience, but really for a broad audience to try to bring the deep truths of Christianity and the gospel into the public square. That's been a, a huge part of my vocational calling, really, for 30 years. And so in different um, incarnations here that I've had uh, as a newspaper reporter, as a magazine editor, as an educator, and now at the Heritage Foundation at the Simon Center, I, I want to continue to do that in different venues. So it's publishing in various places, in, in, in newspaper uh, pages that matter, in magazines that matter, and now working on a, a, on a film project, which we'll talk about. Um, so I guess I think of myself more recently here as, as an historian. I'm a minted historian. I'm a John Locke scholar, uh, but I'm not a philosopher. So when I, when I say I'm a John Locke scholar, it means I've, I've looked at the most accessible a piece of John Locke writing you could probably come up with, his letter on toleration, his letter on religious freedom. It's a very accessible piece of work for the non-philosopher. So I have a real interest in, in religious liberty issues uh, as a thinker, as a writer. Um, and I think Locke's vision is kind of a vision I think we need to recapture, which is to say, how do we learn to live together with our deepest differences? How do we find common ground? How do we organize our political and civic life in a way that allows us to live together without at, at each other's throats in a pluralistic society. Uh, and Locke, I think, offered some, some terrific insights, which had a great influence, not only on, on, on the British example, Great Britain and the Glorious Revolution, but also on the American Revolution and the American founding. So that's a huge scholarly interest of mine, journalistic interest of mine as well. Uh, but now, of course, I, I, I discovered uh, Tolkien... Uh, Lewis, I discovered early in my in my academic career, but Tolkien much later in life, and and now I find myself caught up in, in their story and in their great contribution, I think, uh, to Western civilization. And we'll get into it. What was your introduction to Tolkien? You know, I was working on my John Locke dissertation, my PhD at King's College London, uh, there at the University of London, and so I'm reading Locke during the day, and this is this is after the movies had come out, the uh, the Tolkien movies. The Lord of the Rings uh, films, and I, I finally decided I'm, I'm in my 40s by then, and I'm thinking to myself, I need to read The Lord of the Rings. So I'm reading John Locke during the day, and I'm reading uh, The Lord of the Rings at night in, in a good English pub, and that was a wonderful way to be morally reinvigorated at, at the end of the day. Not escapism, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, in the discussion. Not escapism, but really engagement, moral engagement with life, which is what I think a, a good, careful a uh, respectful reading of, of Tolkien's work will do for you, Lewis's as well. And how is it that you came to encounter Lewis much earlier? Was it Narnia or something else? It wasn't Narnia, actually. It was my uh, my own struggle with, with the Christian faith as, a, as an undergraduate at the University of Illinois. I was a journalism major, got a journalism degree there. And then when I came to Christian faith, I think in a profound way, 
it was after that that I discovered Lewis. Uh, here you are at a secular university, University of Illinois at Urbana. You're being bombarded with all kinds of ideas and ideologies, and you're looking for <laughs> good, good, uh, a good defense of the Christian faith. And I stumbled upon, literally stumbled upon mere Christianity. And then I'm hooked after that, as, as, as lovers of Lewis will know what I mean. <laughs> and, and when did the Inklings become an area of now serious study? Yeah, that's a terrific question. Um, I think it was after I really discovered Tolkien and then realized that Lewis and Tolkien were friends, had become friends at Oxford in 1926. I didn't know that uh, when I was reading C.S. Lewis. I didn't really appreciate their friendship. And even as I'm reading Tolkien, I didn't really appreciate that until I read Humphrey Car uh, Carpenter's a great biography uh, of Tolkien and then realized that Tolkien had fought in the First World War. And I'm thinking, well, Lewis had fought in the First World War. Well, son of a gun, they became friends at Oxford and then go on to write these epic war stories, if you think about what's kind of at the heart of both their stories, Chronicles of Narnia uh, and The Lord of the Rings. It's an overstatement, but they really are war stories. And that got me interested then in the larger fellowship and how their great works uh, developed over time. And you then wrote your book, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe and A Great War. And it was actually one of the first books about the Inklings that I actually read. I had read quite a bit of Lewis, read quite a bit of Tolkien. And it was about the time that we were starting this podcast. I thought I probably should know a little bit more if I'm <laughs> going to put myself forward as somebody who you know owns a microphone and talks about Lewis for a while. And your book, the title particularly grabbed me because when I was at school, I loved history. Uh, in high school in England, we do GCSEs and I did GCSE history. And it's one of my favorite subjects. And our specialty period was the Great War. Wow. So that spoke to me immediately. Uh, but there are quite a lot of Inklings books out there. What, why did you think the world needed this particular book? <laughs> That's a fabulous question, actually. And uh, the world will have to decide at some point, render its judgment if the book was worth writing. You know, as an historian, um, I really thought... Uh, even though there are wonderful, wonderful books about both these men, and I have benefited immensely from the ones that I've read, you're always a midget standing on the shoulders of these giants who've come before. And you've interviewed some of these giants, actually. Uh, so what contribution? I thought as an historian, I didn't feel like there was enough attention to the cultural historical t context of these two men. Uh, you, you have to remember, they both fought in the First World War and survived the trenches, survived the horror of the trenches of France. And then the aftermath, the 20 year aftermath leading up to the Second World War. And there's no one alive, David, there's no one alive now to tell us about what was it like to fight in one world war and then to have to live through another. No one alive now. But these two men, they endured that, that incredible time, that incredible period of crisis in the West. And they had a ringside seat to it there in Great Britain in a way that we Americans don't quite appreciate, I think. So I wanted to help readers to understand, well, how might this incredible experience, how might this have affected their literary imagination? It had to affect them. You could not have isolated yourself from that great cultural ferment and crisis moment in the West. So that's, as a historian, I felt like we've got great books about them written uh, by people who have a background in literary criticism, uh, philosophers have written about their works, theologians have written about their works, but not many historians, not many historians who kind of put their work and their achievements uh, in context. And that's what I set out to do. The book has its weaknesses. It's more of an extended essay, really, 
that it is a book. It's not a scholarly book, so it's got its weaknesses, but it was a first stab at it, really. Well, I really enjoyed it, and I had read Surprised by Joy, and oh yeah, that book is particularly odd, because Lewis keeps skipping over the stuff I care about. Yeah. You would barely know he fought in World War One if you read that book. You would barely know about a lot of the things that happened between his theism and his Christianity. So it was really good to fill in the details somewhat. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for that. Yeah. So for the listeners who haven't taken GCSE history with Mr. Aylward, like I did, uh, can you set the scene a little bit? What was the mood of Europe prior to World War One? Yeah, it's, it's a really important question to ask because you can't appreciate the mood of gloom and disillusionment and cynicism that that really occurred after the First World War, unless you understand what the mood is before the First World War. And that mood is one of, generally speaking, great optimism, a, a great sense of progress, the idea that mankind is getting uh, better uh, uh, every way, uh, every day. <laughs> he's just, he's, he's evolving, uh, ripening toward perfection. And some of this really goes back to Darwin uh, and then uh, Herbert Spencer, who takes Darwin's scientific theory and turns it into a social theory that uh, men and women, even their own human nature is improving. It's not just that technology is improving. And of course, it, it massively was in the 19th century, industrial revolution, all kinds of technological achievement. And so people are beginning to think, well, look, look at these amazing things we can do in taming nature in bringing it under control. The first escalator, I think, uh, appeared in 1900. And it's kind of a metaphor for how uh, men and women are thinking about themselves and human nature. It's just it's just ascending upwards, right? So there's a great mood of hopefulness. Uh, it's it's what C.S. Lewis called the, the myth of progress, a really powerful myth. And if I could read you a quick line here, David, from Lewis. I grew up believing in this myth, he says, and I have felt, I still feel it's almost perfect grandeur. It is one of the most moving and satisfying world dramas which has ever been imagined. And that captures the mood right up to the trenches of 1914. And you talk about in your book how people started thinking that, well, war is just going to die out. We've yes. almost moved beyond that. Yes. And it's shocking when you then read the history of the end of the 20th century. It's really true. There was a book that came out in 1909 called The Grand Illusion, became an be international bestseller. And it was the idea that, you know, war is really a thing of the past. We're too interconnected through capitalism, through trade, through diplomacy. I mean, it's 1909. It's five years before the First World War breaks out. And it's this illusion, the idea of perpetual peace, Kant's view of perpetual peace. We're going to achieve this kind of international cooperation. And the whole concept of war will become a kind of a thing of the past. That idea is out there. It's not everywhere, but it's out there in certain elite circles. No question about it. And you also talk about in your book other things that start cropping up, nationalism, communism, fascism. And the, the one that I found really shocking was the Christian nationalism, the idea God is on our side. Yeah. And being both back in England and here in the United States, seeing a, a form of national pride alongside a faith, there's part of it that always makes me slightly uneasy, no matter how good the country is. But the kinds of things that you spoke about in your book, it was, I, I found it shocking. Yes. And there are, there are entire books uh, devoted to this topic of nationalism and Christian nationalism. 
nationalism as a movement really took off in the mid-19th century, right? After the Napoleonic Wars, the various states in Europe are trying to push back against, against the French. And so these national identities are forming and being solidified. And I think with the decline of religion, particularly in Europe, with the decline of religious belief, that, that longing, that human longing for transcendence, it has to be filled, it has to be met. And so if the Judeo-Christian understanding of the world falls to the wayside, well, what's going to fill its place? Well, initially, it'll be something like nationalism, the nation state defining your purpose and your meaning. And Christian nationalism is kind of what it sounds. It's let's let's slap the Christian label and some Christian theology on top of our nation state with the idea that God is endorsing our entire political project and therefore God is behind us in this in this global conflict and then therefore the enemy is not just an adversary the enemy is on the side of Satan and has to be destroyed completely right <laughs> well that's a recipe for a, a long brutal conflict yeah destroyed and no matter what the cost exactly right exactly no negotiations if you can avoid them and one last thing I want to ask about the war itself how did the Great War. I mean, at the time it was called the Great War. This was the war to end all wars. Yes. How is it different from the wars that have preceded it? Because there had been large conflicts prior to that. Yes. It's a great question. It's a complicated question, but I'll try to answer it in short here, David. It's certainly on the one hand, the technology has changed. You have the uh, appearance of the machine gun, yeah, by the late 19th century, but now you got more than the machine gun. You have mortars, you have shells with such explosive power that just didn't exist in the 19th century, and not only the explosive power, but the range of them. So sometimes I remember teaching, you know, teaching at the King's College in New York, my students, and, and putting the question to them, why did, these, why did the forces on both sides of the First World War build trenches, thousands of miles of trenches? Because they hadn't conducted wars that way before. Well, it's because of the technology. You can't just conduct these, uh, uh, these, these charges on horseback across a battlefield, because now these mortar shells are going to pound you from miles away, not just even from hundreds of yards away, but from miles away. You never know what, what, what hits you. So that technology, the industrialized slaughter of the First World War is something that the European mind has no mental category for. And the, the sh that, that phrase shell-shocked, the shell-shocked soldier, the shell-shocked veteran, will be kind of a metaphor, if you will, for the European mind after the First World War, the disorientation of what this war has done to us. Nine and a half million soldiers dead, millions more wounded, national economies destroyed. There's no mental category for that in Europe. I was giving a talk in North Carolina a while ago, and at the question answer at the end, because my talk had been about Lewis, and somebody said that... Uh, how they could best explain chronological snobbery. You know, the idea, well, new is better because a lot of her friends thought, well, the Bible is old, therefore it can't be relevant. It can't be good. These uh, philosophical ideas are old, therefore they're not relevant to me today. And uh, she said, how do you suggest I explain that? I said, go get <laughs> this book by Dr. Leconte because it demonstrates very clearly that Mankind thought mankind was wonderful. Look at how advanced, look at how technological we are. Look at how we're improving everything. And then in the next generation or two, you see slaughter on a mechanized worldwide scale that nobody had ever even conceived of. Yes, yes. And then you get uh, these great 
poetic works, T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland. Think about the literature that comes out of the First World War, the, the, the war poets and the anti-war literature. Goodbye to all that. I mean, there's just there are so many works that then reflect the mood, the emotional mood. Look what we've done to ourselves. There's something deeply wrong, not only with Western civilization, but human nature itself. I think this is one of the reasons the eugenics movement, which existed before the First World War, really takes off after the First World War, that there's something wrong with the racial body, the racial stock, and maybe we can improve it through genetic engineering, through sterilization policies. And of course, the whole eugenics movement then just takes off in Great Britain and in the United States in a major way. It's almost like a secular response to original sin. Chesterton said that original sin was one of the most unpopular doctrines of Christianity, but he said it was the easiest one to prove. Just go and open up a paper. That's exactly right. Abraham Lincoln said something very much like that. I think he said, um, uh, the Bible says somewhere that man is desperately wicked. I think I would have believed that idea without the Bible. That's uh, Lincoln. <laughs> so absolutely right. The First World War will set loose various contagions, if you will. You know, we're dealing with our own pandemic here. Well, you had the influenza virus, of course, in 1918. It killed upwards of 50 million people, 50 million people, five times the number killed in the First World War right there on the heels of that war. That's not the only contagion, though. The other contagions, if you will, fascism, communism, eugenics, scientism, Freudianism, all of these ideologies, David, it seems to me, they are deeply anti-Christian, anti-Jewish, anti-Bible, anti-God, fundamentally anti-human. But they're trying to, in some way, explain the human condition or the human predicament and offer some vision some alternative vision. And uh, boy, what a disaster. All those ideologies set in motion. Yeah. Well, let's change gears a little bit and speak about Lewis and Tolkien. What were their attitudes in the lead up to the war? And what was their experience of the Great War? Great questions. You know, uh, Tolkien gets into the war first in 1916, and he fights at the Battle of the Somme. And the Battle of the Somme, July 1st, the opening day, as you know, as a Brit, still the single bloodiest day in British military history. And as you know, that's a lot of military history. 19,000 British soldiers, uh, over 19,000 killed, killed on the opening day. So by 1916, you've had two years already of carnage and the European nations have fought themselves to a stalemate. Tolkien sees this, he's watching this and he resists the initial pressure to sign up. He's old enough to sign up in 1914 and he resists. He wants to finish his degree at Oxford, and he does. He finishes his undergraduate degree, uh, and then he'll be in the officer training school. So he'll do his bid for, for, for king and country. He's, he's patriotic, but he also feels the, the sense of loss. A and he talks about this later on in different letters, that he had all this stuff, he says, in him, ready to go, ready to write, and it's just put on hold. And he says he never got it all back. This, and that's kind of amazing. Tolkien, he never got it all back. His, some piece of his creativity, his creative life was stolen from him, he says. And he never got it back, which is just amazing to think about. And I think a whole generation uh, uh, like Tolkien and Lewis felt the same thing. A, part, a piece of their lives was ripped from them. They did their bid for king and country. Uh, they felt like, yeah, it's, we, we've got to try to turn back German aggression. But boy, the cost was just so immense and a sense of real regret that it happened. And I think a very similar thing for C.S. Lewis as well. He goes in in 1917. He enters that conflict 
right at the moment of a real crisis, because if you know that history a bit, uh, David, uh, it's 1917. The Germans are still killing more Allied forces than we'll, than we're killing of Germans. The Americans have gotten in, into the war, but not in large numbers. So Lewis joins in, in April 1917 during the Great Spring Offensive. Russia is out of the war now, and now the German military machine can turn its sights on Paris, and that's what they do. That's the moment when C.S. Lewis gets into the war, and I should just say personal biography. That's when my own grandfather got into the war, my Italian grandfather fighting for the Americans. He was living in America at the time, and uh, the, the Italians want to uh, uh, get him on, on the Italian side, recruit him. The Americans say to my grandfather, uh, Mr. Lacandi, uh, if you fight for us and survive, we'll put you on a fast track to citizenship. And he does. And, <laughs> and here we are. And here we are and survives. But the point is, Lewis will get involved there at a moment of real crisis for the Allies because the German military machine is by no means done. It's the doughboys, the American doughboys coming in who I think really turned the tide of the war. So both Tolkien and Lewis exit the war. I think Tolkien had trench fever. Trench fever, yeah. And uh, Lewis was hit by some of his own artillery. Probably, most likely, a mortar shell goes off, explodes, kills his sergeant, probably obliterates his sergeant, Harry Ayres, standing nearby. And shrapnel from that blast knocks him to the ground. And he thinks he's going to die. It's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty serious wound, but he survives. It's, a, it's an amazing kind of moment for him. It could have easily been the other way. And even trench fever, Tolkien. I mean, a lot of guys died from trench fever as well. He had a severe bout of it. And it took him out of the war at a, at a crucial time. His battalion, uh, the uh, Lancashire Fusiliers, they went off to fight, David, and they were mostly obliterated in the, in the campaigns that followed. So he got out at a providential time, if I could say. Mm. And then they both returned to Blighty and the war then wraps up. What were the consequences of this war? I, I, earlier I asked you what the mood was before the war. Yeah. What was the mood after? How did attitudes and society as a whole change as a result yeah. of that conflict? Yeah, Barbara Tuckman wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Guns of August. Uh, and in that book, she describes it this way. I'll just paraphrase it. If there's one word that summarizes the mood after the war, it's disillusionment. Disillusionment. They believed in human progress. They thought things were getting better. They, they were told that this would be a short, tidy war. It would be over starting in 1914. It would be over before the trees fall from the tree, from the leaves fall from the trees. By December, the war would be over. That's what they were told. And of course, they're locked in stalemate by December of 1914. So the disillusionment is intense. And I think there's a, there's a, there's a rejection of many things. There's a rejection of, uh, think about it, the ideals, the political, the democratic ideals of the West, uh, the economic ideas of free market, the ideas of uh, government by consent of the governed liberal democracy, but also Christianity, because it's the Christian nations of the West, quote unquote, that have been engaged in this mutual suicide pact, which is probably a, a good way to describe the First World War. So there's a sense of disillusionment with all these institutions and ideals and norms that people had just taken for granted. And we should say, David, as well, what went along with that? Well, the idea of heroism, the idea of virtue, the idea that the individual matters, that the individual heroism matters, all of that looked like nonsense when you think about the industrialized slaughter of the First World War. 
So the idea of the state, for example, and this is very uh, on point with, with Mussolini and his doctrine of fascism. Remember, the first fascist movement to begin in Europe, it wasn't in Germany. It was in Italy. It was 1919, Mussolini in Italy in Milan. I actually traveled to Milan last year to kind of mark that centennial moment to the piazza where Mussolini launched his, his fascist movement. And Italy was on the winning side of the war, the winning side, but they lost half a million, half a million soldiers. So the countries were devastated, economically devastated. America came out of the war the strongest. We, as usual, the Americans show up late. Uh, we, su- <laughs> we, we, as you Brits would say, we suffered, yep. the, we suffered the least and we came out the strongest. But it was just the opposite for the Europeans. So the disillusionment, not just with war itself, a lot of pacifism, a lot of pacifists came out of that war. But with the ideals and the institutions of the West, democracy, virtue, heroism, Christianity, all those things are going to the chopping block among the intellectual class, especially. I always like to point out that in The Lord of the Rings, the characters that turn up at the last minute and take all the glory are the eagles. And I then look at the standard of the United States. Coincidence? (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) Okay, so Europe in particular, but the world in general, there is this disillusionment. And now Lewis and Tolkien begin their work seriously as writers. What did they bring to that writing experience? And how do you think it was shaped by that wartime experience? Yeah, it's a big question. It's a huge question. Let's just take a stab at it. You know, one of the interviews we had in working on this film project, which we'll talk about, we interviewed Neil Ferguson. You probably know Neil Ferguson. He's one of Britain's really greatest living historians. And uh, he's done a lot on the First and Second World Wars. And Ferguson said to us, you know, it's hard to describe what it would have been like to be a, a, a soldier who'd survived that that catastrophe of the war, now coming back to England and now having a second chance at life, the sense of urgency, the sense of needing to get on with your work and your task and your vocation. And that would have been heightened, David, as you now, as, as Churchill put it, the gathering storm of fascism will, will start to uh, emerge in the 1930s, that sense of urgency of getting on with your work. But the immediate aftermath, I think, for these guys is, yeah, amazing gratitude that they're alive. I think a real sense of, of, of sobriety about human life, about how fragile it is, the capacity uh, for men and nations to uh, bring about great evil and destruction upon ourselves. So a, a realism about human nature, but they're not cynics, and that's important. They don't become cynics. Tolkien has a robust Catholic faith going into the war. I'm sure it's tested throughout, but he's also attending mass whenever he can uh, throughout the war. Uh, and then I think his faith will be strengthened and renewed afterwards. Lewis, as you know, is an atheist going into the conflict, and he's an atheist in a foxhole. And it'll be his great association with Tolkien and other Christian men and women as well who will lead him out of atheism into theism and then into Christianity. So they don't become cynics. And I think part of the reason is not only their faith, David, let me just say this as well, and then back over to you. These are men who are grounded in the, in the classic texts of the Western tradition, the canon. So they have in their minds, as part of their mental furniture and their moral outlook, they have these great epic works, Homer, Virgil, Dante, I mean, Milton. Uh, These are works that take the human condition seriously, the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
And there's a strong sense of the transcendent, of a sense of purpose and vocation and meaning to it all, despite the sorrow and the tragedy. They are grounded in those great works. And I think they, and by their own admission, these are anchors for them through life, as well as the scriptures. These great works are anchors through life. And how do they try and communicate those once again to a society that has either forgotten them or become so disillusioned with them? Yeah. Yeah. Why are they drawn to these myths, right? Why are Lewis and Tolkien drawn to the genre of myth? And as Diana Glyer has put it to us, and I'm, I'm probably put it to you as well, myths are not just falsehoods. Myths, they're narratives that embody some of the deepest, deepest truths about the human condition in narrative form. That's what they're giving us, these great truths. And so the great myths speak to the human condition and all of its frailty and all of its capacity also for beauty and for virtue. So these men are drawn to this mythic, heroic tradition. And I think part of their achievement, which we have to kind of step back with a sense of awe and wonder in what they accomplish, they want to take that mythic tradition and use it, but reinvent it for the modern mind. Because they're speaking now into a culture that has become deeply cynical, anti-romantic, if you will, mm-hmm. anti-hero, anti-heroic, deeply cynical about all kinds of things. They, they want to speak into that moment, I think, very consciously and very deliberately and retrieve the best of that mythic and heroic tradition and recast it uh, and bring those truths, those, those great moral and spiritual truths that are embodied in that mythic tradition and now speak it into their own moment. And that's an amazing thing that they even attempt to do, much less accomplish it, right? And that was one of the things I was going to ask you. Why do you think they were able to accomplish it <laughs> on the heels of such a conflict? I mean, I, I've read some of their critics early on, but even then they do seem to, in such an environment, they do seem to have remarkable success. Boy, that is a wonderful question, and it's someone just needs to write a book to try to answer that question. And it's, be, it's beyond me. It's beyond my ability at all. I, I would love to. Perhaps this conversation will prompt one of our friends to, to 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 write a book to try to address the question because we really should try to explore it. There's a mystery here, of course, about all that. You can't predict what books are going to have effects on on a culture. And you you remember this line probably, David. When Tolkien and Lewis are early in their friendship, and Lewis is a Christian now, it's around 19, I don't know, it's around 1935, 36, 37, and uh, they turn to each other, and, and Lewis turns to Tolkien, and he, he says to him, okay, Tollers, his nickname for Tolkien, all right, Tollers, if they're not going to write the kinds of books we want to read, we're going to have to write them ourselves. Mm. Not having any idea what that's going to mean, what kind of effect it's going to have, but they really had that conversation. There's a line here I want to read you, if I could, from uh, Lewis's A Preface to Paradise Lost. And it tells us a lot, I think, about him. And maybe it's a partial answer to your question. It's his attachment to Virgil's The Aeneid and this great epic story about the founding of Rome. And um, this was a book, uh, The Aeneid, that was important to Lewis throughout his life. And he even started his own translation of it. He never finished but it moved him deeply, and he read it and reread it. I don't think anyone knows how many times. I'm not sure Lewis knew how many times. But here's what he says in describing it. All through the poem, we are turning a corner, a kind of a great epic corner. 
it is this which gives the reader of the Aeneid the sense of having lived through so much. No man who has once read it with full perception remains an adolescent. Mm. Wow. No man who has read it attentively remains an adolescent. You, you, you change when you read a work like that, and that's the kind of work they wanted to produce. You read the Chronicles of Narnia, you read the Lord of the Rings, you read Till We Have Faces. You're not a little boy or a little girl anymore if you read it attentively. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what they wanted to achieve. And I think in a way that, that no one else, they have no real peer, I think. There are others in, their, in the Inklings who are important, Charles Williams and others who are really important. But I don't think anyone quite accomplished what these men accomplished, right? Wow. Yeah. Okay, then. Let's talk about your documentary. <laughs> yes, let's. <laughs> I first heard about your book being converted into a documentary film series when I was at a C.S. Lewis conference in L.A. So how did this documentary come about? Because, you know, not everybody's books get picked up for turned into movies and TV shows. Uh, so how did that documentary come about and what are the plans for it? What formats are it going to be in? Thank you for that question, David. And the hand of God throughout this process, Ralph Linhart who was a documentary filmmaker there in California, he heard me give a talk about the book at the uh, Oxford, uh, uh, what do you call it? Oxbridge uh, event the C.S. Lewis Foundation puts on every couple of years. And he heard me give that talk. He reached out to me in an email, which I almost deleted, uh, and said, you know, Joe, I heard your talk. It's a great talk. I, I, I'm getting my hands on your book. I think maybe there's a film in this, in this story. And I emailed him back and said, yeah, I think there's a film in it, too. What do you want to do about it? And he says, well, I'd like to come meet you. So I said, well, come on out. He and, uh, and his good friend, Jock Peterson, another cinematographer, director, they both came out to my house. This is about three years ago now. We sat down in my living room where I am right now. We call, I call it the Churchill Room, the Winston Churchill Room. Lots of Churchill volumes behind me. I, I uh, see them. I have noticed. You, you can see them there. Great. And we just mapped out a strategy, David, for how we might do a documentary film series. We knew we couldn't do it in just an hour. So we mapped out a four or five a kind of episodes based on the book. And then we d- tried to figure out, OK, how can we begin to raise some money for this? And we produced the film trailer uh, as the beginning of that process, a four and a half minute trailer that's, that's been out for a while now to give a sense of the overview of the film series. That's the big picture. And how far complete is it? Or when might we expect it to be completed? Well, the, the very good news is we have episode one, an hour-long episode, basically in the can. It's in post-production. It's a one-hour episode, and we, we basically begin with the early, ex- early life experiences of Tolkien and Lewis. They have not yet met, and then we follow them with some care into the war, into the First World War. That's episode one, these two men off to war. Uh, we, you know, we're all slowed down by the coronavirus. So we've got to get a musical score. We have to do some artistic touches, but all the, sh- all the filming is done. It's in the can. We're doing a little editing, of course. Look, if we can open up the doors here, get back into the studios, we think within a couple of months, we'll be ready to approach Amazon or Netflix with, with episode one and, and then try to negotiate a deal for the rest of those episodes and raise money along the way to do it. We, we started a nonprofit, Eastgate Creative, named after the Eastgate Hotel there in Oxford, where the two of them would meet for lunch. It's a wonderful hotel. I've stayed there. And uh, so uh, we're just in a nonprofit, you know, filmmaking business uh, trying to raise money for this film. We are very, very excited about the response. I've given a number of talks 
on the book, you know, on the film project to college audiences. And I just see the enthusiasm. Very exciting. And I'll make sure I include a link to the trailer in the show notes for this episode. That'd be great. Uh, as we start moving towards the conclusion uh, of this episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about their legacy for today. Because we've spoken about how Lewis and Tolkien spoke to their own generation in the post four years. And I, I think, how do they speak to us today? What is it that they have to say to our generation in the same way that the post-war generation was in great danger? And in many ways, they, 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 they pulled that generation back from the brink, supported them through World War II. What do you think they have to say to us today in England and today in the United States? Yeah, it's a fabulous question, uh, David. And I'm still kind of unpacking that. We certainly will unpack it in the film series. There's a few parts to that answer. One thing I would say, which has been deeply encouraging to me, is that and it's good for young people, especially to keep this in mind in the, in the time and the moment we're in. When life just is, doesn't seem normal at all, and it seems like we're being robbed of things that we'd like to be able to do and to have. I mean, these men experienced a kind of loss and a struggle, a suffering. They went through the fires of suffering in ways that most of us hopefully will not experience. They endured it, uh, and they grew and matured through it. And I think that's really important. And they, in some ways, they use that experience uh, to teach them, to grow them up. And even as a source of inspiration. So Tolkien says explicitly, his Sam Gamgee, his Hobbit, one of the most beloved creatures of modern fiction, is based, he says explicitly, on the ordinary English soldier doing his duty in the trenches. So he took that horrible experience and it became inspirational. Heroism, men at their post you know, when, when the call of duty comes. So the ability to... to draw from uh, a deep suffering inspiration and hope. That's an incredible kind of capacity, a muscle we have to all develop, all of us. I certainly do. That's part of one thing I would put on the table. The other thing, of course, is friendship and the importance of friendship. Uh, friendship with a cause, friendship with a purpose. And I know, uh, given your background and your, your podcast here, I know you've read The Four Loves. I know you've read probably many times the chapter on friendship. It is one of the most important things ever written about friendship, that particular chapter. And the more I've learned about Lewis and Tolkien and their lives, the more I can see how that chapter grew out of their shared experience. And if I can find it quickly, uh, uh, David, I want to read you a line, if I could, uh, from, from Lewis, a letter that Lewis wrote to Tolkien. They didn't write many letters to each other because, you know, they were there in Oxford living together, but then, you know, living in the same town. Uh, but here's what he says, what Lewis writes to Tolkien after he finishes, finally, the manuscript for The Lord of the Rings, which took him years to do. So Lewis now has The Lord of the Rings manuscript in his hands for the first time, the completed manuscript, and he's delighted. And he's writing a letter to his friend to express his delight. And this is a lesson for all of us, I think, about the power of friendship. Here's what he writes to him, just a bit of it. He's looking forward to the sheer pleasure now of looking forward to having the book to read and to reread. And then he goes on, Lewis to Tolkien. But a whole lot of other things come in. So much of your whole life, so much of our joint life, so much of the war, so much that seemed to be slipping away without a trace into the past is now in a sort made permanent. 
think about what he's saying, that somehow hidden in the pages of The Lord of the Rings, it tells something of their shared journey together as friends. That's just a remarkable thing to say. And it happened because they went through life together. They shared their deepest hopes with each other. They shared their creative works with each other. Tolkien said he never would have completed The Lord of the Rings had it not been for Lewis's constant encouragement to keep writing, to keep with it. Tolkien read out loud most of The Lord of the Rings to the Inklings and to C.S. Lewis as well. And same for Lewis. He's reading out loud to the Inklings his works, his space trilogy, The Chronicles of Narnia. So, boy, the power of friendship to be transformative and to be redemptive and to allow these men to produce things, great works of beauty and virtue and truth that they never would have accomplished on their own, never would have done it. That's a huge lesson, it seems to me, for us, especially as Americans, <laughs> who love to think of ourselves as so self-sufficient. We're not. We need to be in community. In this case, it was a community of writers, Christian men, Christian writers, a shared moral vision. That's a huge lesson for our time, I think, David, because they were doing that against the grain, against the grain, not when the society and the culture was for them and cheering them on. It wasn't. They were cheering each other on in community. And boy, we need more of that right now, don't we? Amen to that. <laughs> the one thing about their friendship that nobody ever seems to be able to tell me is who would win in a game of Scrabble? <laughs> I'll tell you that. Oh, it's got to be Tolkien, the philologist. Come on. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 would, I, I think uh, Lewis would be a scrappy underdog. <laughs> well, he would be a scrap. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> Okay, thank you so much. Uh, so during Tolkien Month, I'm ending every interview with a simple quiz. I'll give you two options and you just choose the preferred option. All righty. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Elves or dwarves? Oh. Elves, I think because of Rivendell. Well, that might come up again later. Early bird or night owl? Night owl. Gandalf or Radagast? I'll say Gandalf. Call or text? Call. Tom Bombadil, wonderful or wretched? <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> iPhone or Android? Android. Ooh. Pippin or Merry? <laughs> Pippin or Merry? I've got to say both. Come on now. How do you choose between Pippin and Merry? <laughs> All right, Pippin. Shalob? Or Nazgul? For sheer terror, Nazgul. Second breakfast or Elevenses? Second breakfast. Boromir or Faramir? Faramir. Balrogs, wings or wingless? Wingless? Wait, I'll say wingless. Bagels or croissant? <laughs> well, I'm a New York boy, so I'm going to have to say bagels. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you, you could get lynched if you give another answer. That's right. The movies or the book? Well, the book. The book. Arwen or Eowyn? Eowyn. Rivendell or Lothlorien? Rivendell. Gollum or Jar Jar Binks? Gollum. <laughs> <laughs> and the last one, Lewis or Tolkien? Oh, we can't, we can't choose. We cannot choose. They, we can't, and we can't appreciate them without the other. Without the other. That's, that's a good way of saving what is otherwise a very cowardly answer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> 
Dr. Lagonzo, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Uh, we'd love to have you back on once again once the documentary is released or being shopped around. And to close things out, could you please tell everyone where they can find out more about you and your book, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War? Yes, thank you, David. It's been a great pleasure, delight being with you. I wish you best with this podcast and all. Um, Hobbitwardrobe.com. Hobbitwardrobe.com is where you can see the trailer. Uh, and if you want to support the project, that's a good place to do it. For me, my website, josephlocanti.com, you'll see all the articles that I write uh, and post. I've written a lot about uh, this project, Tolkien and Lewis, and other things there. And also at the Heritage Foundation, Heritage uh, heritagefoundation.org over there. But uh, yeah, hobbitwardrobe.com. I would want to drive your uh, listeners and, and viewers uh, to, to that site. I think that was a domain name that you're pretty much guaranteed to be able to get. I don't know how anyone else would end up with that combination. <laughs> uh, I'd like to thank all of those who support the podcast on patreon.com, particularly our top tier supporters, Chris, John, Kate, and Rowdy. Listeners, please join us next time when I'll be talking with Caitlin from the podcast Tea with Tolkien where she'll be talking about Hobbit spirituality. And we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers, friend. <laughs>